So let's go ahead and get into um, the text. All right, so the high priest at the time, his name was Caiaphas, and he ruled from 18 to 36 A.D. And, we, and the tradition of his house is in the, this area of Jerusalem known as Mount Zion. And you see Mount of Olives, uh, Gethsemane was at the bottom of Mount of Olives. It's about a half mile trip to Caiaphas' house if this is in fact his house. Um, there is now standing there the Church of St. Peter in Galicantu. Has anyone ever been there, those of you Holy Land people? Uh, Galicantu, it means cock crows. Hmm, wonder why. We'll find that out next week. Um, cock crow. Cock crow. Um, so also in this church, um, you see here, there is this like thing that you can look over into, and which is what you look down. This is, this is the traditional place of where there, there are these caves they found in the excavation. And it's, this is believed to be where Jesus was held when he had been arrested, okay? Um, one thing that, you know, you know, sometimes in the Holy Land you hear all kinds of things. This is where Jesus walked. This is where Jesus did. Uh, but we do know from the 4th century there was a pilgrim of Bordeaux. That's all we know about him. It said the house of the high priest Caiaphas where the pillars to which Jesus was bound and whipped are still evident. So it seems like this was a place that was known, and it continued to be known, and so there's, uh, I think there's a high probability that, you know, this was the place. But what I want us to see here is there's two scenes that are happening um, at Caiaphas's house. One is presumably this inner chamber, and the other is taking place uh, in the outside courthouse, court, courtyard rather, not courthouse courtyard. Of course, Jesus is here, right? And who's in the courtyard? Peter. And so what, what happens is, this is the way Mark writes. This is another one of those great literary forms. And he goes he, so first with Jesus, then he comes back and he talks about Peter. He goes back to talk about Jesus and his trial. And then he comes back to Peter and he deals with his personal trial that's happening outside in the court, courtyard. And the reason that these writers did this was to make contrast. We're supposed to pick up on this. And there's a contrast. So uh, what we're finding is this great contrast about how do you deal when you're under pressure? And so Jesus, how did he do? He stands firm, right? How will Peter do? He crumbles, right? Uh, Jesus will go uh, to his death after w the proceedings here, and Peter escapes. And even though he escapes, he loses his integrity as a disciple of Jesus. So these first readers of Mark, they read this already under persecution, okay, by the time Mark is written. They come to this, and, and they're supposed to, to take this, this you know, self-examination. Who, who am I as the pressure is on, as I'm being pressured as a disciple of Jesus? 
and, and it's supposed to be for us too. But while this is there, and there's always, man, there's just so much that we find in these things. But while we find all this stuff here, there's something even bigger happening, okay? And Mark makes sure that we know who bears the responsibility for Jesus going to his death. Who, will it, who is responsible? Well, the Jews. I mean, these people were Jews, but it wasn't the Jews. Yeah, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, uh, and so forth. And um, Jesus has already prophesied uh, about this fulfillment. Oh, yeah, oh I had it. Um, he had already prophesied about this fulfillment. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That was his first of the three predictions that were given in the Gospel of Mark. And now we're seeing that prediction being made up. We know. Sanhedrin, who are supposed to be this religious group of folk, um, they were uh, very deceptive. You remember at the very first of the chapter, they're trying a way to a stealthy way to arrest Jesus, to kill Jesus. And here is this trial. When is this trial taking place? What part of the day? Yeah, it's in the middle of the night. Is that when normally people have trials? No. And even later on in Acts, you know, they say, well, it's evening. Oh, we, you know, it's already evening. We've got to shut down. So this is not the way uh, they normally did things. And so it's taking place in the middle of the night, and it's also taking place where? The house of the high priest. Is that normal? Is that where trials were held? No. They were actually held. They had their own court, the Sanhedrin. And it was here, um, for those of you over here, it's right here, um, right inside of the court, the, the, uh, the court, the courtyard for men, right past the courtyard of the women. And that's where they held court. But they're not held, holding court here. Yeah, they're wanting to hide it. From who? The crowds. Folks, the crowds are following Jesus. They, they want to know more about Jesus, right? Um... So, it suggests to us that this is an absolute kangaroo court, and I want to show you some other things, I think. Uh, in the Mishnah, tra Tractate Sanhedrin, uh, the Mishnah is, is, is the oral laws of the Jews, and later on it was put into book form in 200 AD. Now, this is 170 years after what's happened here, so we're not exactly sure if some of these traditions changed, but... If it is based on the Mishnah uh, Sanhedrin, according to Catholic cases, it must take place in the daytime, which it doesn't here. It must not be held on the eve of Sabbath or festival, which is not happening here. Witnesses must be warned against rumor or hearsay. That certainly doesn't seem to be happening here. It must be in one of the three specified courtrooms, and one of those is not the house of the high priest. It must begin by hearing the case for the defense. And then it must not reach a conviction on the same day the trial began. There has to be a second day, according to the Mishnah. Now, again, this is 170 years since that trial. Maybe some things changed, but even if a few of these things, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Mark shows us this is a farce. This is absolutely a farce. So the Sanhedrin, have they already determined Jesus' guilt and innocence? Oh, yeah. 
We know that. What are they looking for? What do they need? They need witnesses, right? And according to the law, in capital cases, capital punishment cases, there had to be the witness of more than one. And they had several witnesses. But what was the problem? They didn't agree. They didn't have the same story. It's, 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 again, this is just, this whole thing is a farce. Um, and so this opposition between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, how long has it been going on? Yeah, it really has started all the way back to the time Jesus began his ministry. Jesus claimed to forgive sins and they, they about, you know, um, busted a nerve there. Jesus associated with sinners handle that. Jesus had liberal views of fasting. Jesus overridden their view of the Sabbath. And, and it comes off of this. This is verse 2, um, you know, really chapter 2 and a little bit into chapter 3. And, we come, and it comes to the conclusion. They're going to the Herodians, who they never went to. They hated each other. And they're going to and say, we've got to destroy this guy. We've got to destroy Jesus. And even though they kept trying to discredit Jesus, what happened? His popularity grew, right? I mean, Jesus is just this, he's so amazing. Um, and once he comes to Jerusalem, does he help out matters? <laughs> what has he done since he's been in Jerusalem that kind of sets him off? Yeah, overturning tables, he's throwing them out. How did he arrive in Jerusalem? Into the oh yeah he he arrives as a king, that's the way he made sure that it was done in this way. What about the scribes? Remember that Jesus referred to the scribes. Put it in my words, he's basically calling them pompous parasites. I mean that's that's really what he's calling them there. And so they looked at Jesus and they said, "This guy is dangerous. This guy is a troublemaker." Now the Sanhedrin. Let me say this, the Sanhedrin had plenty at this point to arrest Jesus on their own, even to flog him. But they wanted more, didn't they? What did they want? They wanted Jesus dead. Why was this a problem for the Sanhedrin? Yeah, only people can, you know, they're under Roman oppression. And so only the Romans can give the right. So now... In order to go to the Romans, they've got to have witnesses, and they've got to have some serious indictments, right? They've got to have some very serious indictments. So there's two charges that we see um, in, in John 18:31. Here it says, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But let's look at these two charges. One is Jesus plans to destroy the temple. Why is that a problem? Remember Jesus, you know, this is what they're saying. He's wanting to destroy the temple. Why is this a problem? Yeah, that was their center of worship. This was, this, was, yeah, this was also where the Sanhedrin has their power, right? This was where the Jews placed their hope, was here at the temple. Folks, this was, this was pretty, pretty major. Um, but it also said that Jesus would do what after destroying it? He's going to rebuild it. How, how long? Three days. And how's it going to be built? 
Or how's it not going to be built? With human hands. It's not going to be with human hands. Now, the Old Testament said of David's offspring that um, there would be a house that would be built. It would be established, the throne of his kingdom forever. And there's evidence in the first century that there were some Jews who believed that, they, that the previous, the temple that was, that was there, that there was going to be another temple that would be rebuilt at the end times. Okay? So there are already those who are seeing in this site, and we know the intertestamental time. And this is their writing of Jew, Jewish writings. They're not in the canon of Scripture, okay? But they help us to see what are people thinking, what are groups doing, and, and as we come on the scene of the, of the, the New Testament. And so there's this book called First Enoch, and it, it shows forth that this temple that's going to come, that it's going to really, uh, it's going to rival the splendor of the Messiah himself. But in Mark's view, the temple is destroyed when? Yes, at Jesus' death. And what is the significance of the temple being destroyed at that moment? The old system, the sacrificial system, it's done. Right? Jesus becomes the ultimate and great sacrifice. There's no reason uh, for those things anymore. Uh, the temple is where God now live, where God now lives. Does it have anything to do with buildings? Made by hands? No, it's not. Uh, even uh, uh, later on, we're going to you can see a parallel to this back with Stephen in chapter seven. It's, this is not a house that's made with hands. Um, and so the temple is where God, or it's of a different type. The temple is not human. The resurrected Jesus is going to replace the previous temple. Christ appears as the high priest, right? He's greater, he's more perfect than a tent. Now, where was, where was God's presence before? The temple, right? Then that's the temple. And so here, Yahweh rested. Where? The Holy of Holies on what? The Ark of the Covenant, right? But now we see that the presence of God has shifted from a building to what? To what? To people, right? And, and we see this not only of individuals, but it also speaks within the community of God. This is where God's presence, this is where God's temple has now been built. It's, it's within us. And, and it's, it's just a powerful thing. It's made with hands. This is the Spirit of God comes, and that's, that's a whole other thing there. But the Sanhedrin, could they find two witnesses? Agreed. No. So the high priest, he steps up. He stood up, and, and he gets involved, and he asked Jesus about things being said about him. And how does Jesus respond so far in this text? Pilate, anything significant about that? Say it. 
53, yes, folks, this is more prophecy. You see this. Prophecy's just, it's filling this place, which is why it's so ironic when we come to the end. But anyway, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. He was a lamb being led to the slaughter, and like the sheep that was before its shears, he is silent, and he opened not his mouth. His silence is a perfect way of showing his innocence. Okay? Showing his innocence. False witnesses couldn't get their story straight, and so they, they don't pursue this charge anymore. So there's another charge that's coming. So the high priest takes charge, and he asks Jesus directly, what? What does he ask? Are you the Christ? The son of the blessed. Now, the blessed is referring to God. This was their pious the name of God. We've talked about that before. So he just brings it out there. And this is the second claim, second charge, and that is Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Okay, this is a big deal as well. Now, here's what's really cool. Okay, this is fun with Greek. <laughs> I know you're like, there's no fun with Greek. Yes, there is. There's a lot of fun with it. And one of the things is the original statement, as it's put out in the Greek, it, the question is put in the form of a statement. This is what it actually says. You are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. Of course, it's saying, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. But here we see for the very first time a human giving a confession that Jesus is the son of God. Now, has Jesus been called the son of God before? Demons, yeah. Uh, whenever these unclean spirits, they fall, they say, you are the son of God. Later in chapter 5, you are the son of God. And there's someone else who also says he is the son of God. Who is it? I'll give you a hint. At Jesus' baptism. Yeah, yeah, very good. God did himself. He says, you are my beloved son. And then later at the transfiguration. Uh, where he says, this, this is my beloved son. So Jesus, um, and, and let me say this, here's the irony. The two in Mark who refer to him as the son of God were both responsible for his death. One is here, the high priest, Sanhedrin. And does anyone know who the other one is? But yeah, the centurion is going to do this at the cross. It's, it, there's just, it's just amazing when you see this so another first that we find here is jesus publicly says he's the christ remember what he had said before this time you know he says look don't tell who i am he did that when peter says you are the christ remember that the great confession he says he strictly charged them to tell no one about it and now all of a sudden at the trial before the sanhedrin that's going to deliver him to death, he says, I am. And then he does something that just, if you get it, it rocks your world, okay? And, and it, it's, he, Jesus keeps talking. He's broken his silence and he says, you, I right, get this, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, which is also the mighty one, and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus talking about? Yeah, yeah. Jesus takes two Old Testament prophecies, and he weaves these together, and this hasn't been done. 
And one comes from Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and I'll make your enemies my footstool. And then Daniel 7, 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. Folks, this is radical stuff, because in the psalm, the king of Israel, this is where it was referred to, the king of Israel sat at the right hand of God in that he was God's earthly representative to Israel. Okay, that's, that's the way it was seen. And so um, Jesus has already appealed to Psalm 110. You remember this before? And he was answering the scribes. He was telling them, you know, you're calling Christ the son of David. And he says, but if you look at Psalm 110, David calls him Lord. How can he be his Lord and be his son at the same time? And, and so he's already been alluding in this way. Um, yeah, yeah, I already got that up there. So Jesus extends that image with this reference to Daniel 7, 13, coming with the clouds of heaven. We just keep coming back to Daniel 7, don't we? What is significant about Daniel 7? Daniel 7, the son of man. Remember this? The son of man. And, and one who is like the son of man, and that means human, he comes to the ancient of days, which is the Father, and the Father gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and he's over the nations and languages will serve him. There's everlasting dominion. His kingdom will not be destroyed. He sits on the empty throne. You remember us going through this in Daniel and, and the and a few verses before this, I should have put it up there. A few verses before this, it says, the ancient of day, he comes on his thrones. It's plural. He's on a throne, but there's an empty throne. Who's going to sit on that throne? He doesn't tell us. What we do know about the Son of Man is he represents the saints of the Most High. That's all we're kind of given at that particular point. But Jesus is combining these two from Psalm and also Daniel chapter 7. So the one like the Son of Man, he is no longer a mystery. But he is a real human being. He is a descendant of David in whom the messianic prophecies are realized. Sitting at God's right hand is no longer a symbol of royalty. Okay, I'm the king of Israel. It's no longer this symbol of royalty, but it represents divine power. His sonship is on a higher plane than other psalms. For the kings of Israel, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be, give him a father and he shall be to me a son. And all of this, he raises this up. He is more than a nationalistic deliverer, which is what they saw or what they thought. So Jesus will reign at the right hand of God and they will one day see it, is what Mark says, and what also Daniel says. Seeing has to do with witnessing his vindication. In a cruder way of using this, it's like when, a, when the Supreme Court overrules a lower court. And this court is condemning Jesus. But what it's saying, what Jesus is saying, is I am the Christ the Son of God, 
I am the son of man who will sit at the right hand of God and I will bring vindication and I will be judging you. Let's see how they respond. All right, so the high priest is shocked, right? What does he do? Yeah, he tears his clothes. This is a sign of grief. It's also what people did when um, they heard blasphemy. Uh, this, and that's the charge, it's blasphemy, right? It's a language expressing disrespect for God. And this is what the charge is. Galilean preacher from the north, not of the royal descent as far as where they think. They're up in that hick area up there, and they're making this kind of claim. They just think this is, there's no way. And so what do they do? They condemn him. And that condemnation is to what? To death. Even though they didn't have the authority to execute Jesus at this time. In the Old Testament, um, the penalty for blaspheming was to be stoned. They would have loved to have taken Jesus at that point and just stoned him to death, but they couldn't. So they're going to have to take him to the Romans. This is the best evidence they have. But here's the thing. Romans, they don't execute people for blasphemy. But they're going to twist it. And they're going to show that Jesus' claim is a claim of political treason. And that's how they're going to get around a lot of this as well. The hearing before the Sanhedrin, which made a mockery of justice, now they are mocking Jesus. And, and you see what they did here at the end. These are supposed to be the leading citizens of Jerusalem. And they're spitting. It's a, it's a sign of rejection and insult. They blindfold Jesus. And they even strike him. They say, prophesy. They're, they're making an absolute mockery. And we know this is irony. Why? What is happening right now is fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus has already given. I think this is it. Yeah. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. That's happened. They will condemn him to death. That's happened. They're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. And they will flog him. And in this case, they will have him flogged and killed. Folks, the prophecy is happening as they are telling Jesus to prophesy. And don't forget about the new prophecies that Jesus gives. You will see me vindicated. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. And there's so much irony. We'll just end with this irony that we find in the Gospel of Mark. One is the Sanhedrin stands on the law, but in reality the Sanhedrin breaks the law. And Jesus is the one who upholds it. The testimony of the Sanhedrin needed, uh, needed against Jesus is in the end not provided by false witnesses, but is provided by Jesus in his claim to be the Son of God. Another irony, Jesus stands on trial before the Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin will stand trial before the Son of Man when he returns in glory. The Sanhedrin mocks Jesus' ability to prophesy, but his prophecies all come true. And then the big one. The high priest, not Jesus, is the one who blasphemes because Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray and we'll dismiss our worship time.
Father, we thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you for allowing us to be here this day. Father, we pray for those who may not be feeling well and not able to be with us. Father, we're also very mindful of this coronavirus that's going throughout our world and has now even entered into the United States. And Father, we just pray for your hand in, in all of this, that, that if you will, Father, please stop it. Please keep uh, your people safe. And not just from, from these things, but also from persecution and, and uh, torment that they, they face in other countries especially. Father, we just ask you to continue to be with us in our time of our worship to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 